you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 10. Back in the book of Acts. Today we're going to begin in chapter 10, verse 44. And we're going to go to chapter 11, verse 17. I think in your bulletins it'll say 1118. Uh, But during my study this week, I came to the conclusion uh, that I, I, I didn't want to squeeze 18 in with where we were going. So the plan is next week, uh, we're just going to look at 18 uh, by itself, 11-18. But we'll go through Acts chapter 11, verse 17 today. The term watershed moment is one I think most all of us Uh, would be familiar with. Uh, A watershed moment is one of those turning points where things will never be the same after. Uh, One of those uh, turning point, an exact moment where uh, there's a change of direction and things will never go back to normal after that or what people believed is normal. Now, the easiest Watershed moments to think of, at least in my mind, are those that come before major wars. Like, for example, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand or even the Boston Tea Party. Those, I think, could be classified as watershed moments. But I bring up that term because this is what we're seeing in Acts 10 and 11. In this narrative of Cornelius, and really you could even go back further to chapter 9 in the conversion of Saul and everything that Saul's conversion portends, but especially with this conversion of Cornelius and his household, we have a watershed moment, a definite event where things are never going to be the same. In these couple of chapters, we see just how it is that the church will expand beyond Judaism and Jerusalem and become a multinational, multi-ethnic, global church. And didn't Jesus prepare them for this? Some of the last words that he spoke to them before ascending to heaven... He told them, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in, in, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So you have these concentric circles where as witnesses they are going out. Now, for the previous thousand years, Jerusalem had been the religious center, right? It was the home of the temple. Everyone looked to Jerusalem. Everyone pilgrimaged there. People wanted to live there and and worship there. Jerusalem is the city where Jesus himself went. It's the city where he was crucified, where he was raised from the dead. It's the city where the Holy Spirit first falls on the day of Pentecost, and you have 3,000 people converted in one day. And so far in our study of the book of Acts, we've been, we've been in Samaria some, and we've been in Judea, and we've 
and to Lydda and Joppa and different places. But a majority of the focus has been in Jerusalem. But once you get to chapter 10, things begin to change. The church is going out of Jerusalem. And as you read further in the New Testament, you'll see we don't have a whole lot of letters. We don't have any letters to the churches located in the various boroughs in Jerusalem. We have letters to the church in Rome, and Galatia, and Ephesus, and Philippi, and Colossae. The church is going out. And in this watershed moment, we are seeing uh, that Gentiles like us, Gentiles who are not God's people, will become God's people. And I want to remind you where we've been. It's been a while. We had the season of Advent over a month. And so I want to make sure we're on the same page. And so I'm, I'm going to briefly review. And, and I don't feel bad doing this at all. Because in Acts, this same narrative is repeated at least three different times. So there's, there's some importance here. So I don't feel bad being redundant. Acts chapter 10. This watershed chapter begins by Luke introducing a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion stationed in the coastal city of Caesarea. He's an officer. He's also an upstanding, moral, generous man who desires to learn more about the God of Israel. And one day we're told he is praying and an angel visits him and informs him that his prayers have been heard and that he is to immediately send for a man named Peter, who is in Joppa, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. And so Cornelius, being the good soldier he is, responds in absolute obedience and sends three men to go find Peter. The scene then shifts back to Joppa, to Peter. It's the following day. It's about noon. Peter is hungry, but lunch is not ready, and so he goes up on the roof to pray. And Luke tells us that Peter has a vision. He falls into, the, into a trance, and he sees the heavens opened like this, uh, and this great sheet begins to descend on the earth, and the sheet is held by its four corners. I, I use the imagery of a parachute. Imagine an upside-down parachute, and within it you have all of the creatures that would have been in Noah's Ark, every Bird and reptile and mammal is in this sheet. And Peter is seeing this being lowered down. And then, if that wasn't shocking enough, he hears a voice from heaven which says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. To this, Peter vehemently protests. He says, By no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And then the voice comes a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. You can understand how perplexing this would be to Peter. Uh, his, his whole life, he's followed these dietary laws, and now he's seeing uh, this incredible image of all of these animals, and he's told uh, to go and eat, that all of the distinctions that had been in place are now taken down, and he can eat. These dividing lines between the ethnic Jews and Gentiles are being removed. Now, 
in a short time, Peter is going to see that this vision is not really about food, but it is about people. He demonstrates this in chapter 10, verse 28, where he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The point is made because this vision is repeated three times, and then immediately following this, Cornelius' men arrive at the very house Peter is staying at and begin asking for him. And God speaks to Peter through his spirit and says, Go down and go with these men back to Caesarea. Peter invites them into his house, and the following day they return back to Cornelius. And upon uh, completing the 30-mile journey and arriving in Caesarea, Peter finds Cornelius expecting him. Cornelius has gathered all of his relatives and close friends to his home. He's gathered them so that when Peter arrives, they might hear the words of life. And we talked about how this is just a a preacher's dream. Uh, To have people gathered and they're ready and they're saying, listen, God has prepared us and he has brought you to us and we are in his presence and we are open and we desire to hear his word from you. The word that will give us salvation, so speak. Speak to us the words that he has commanded you. I mean, it's the most receptive audience ever. And so Peter speaks. He speaks words about the Lord Jesus Christ, his life, death, resurrection. And he ends with this grand statement that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So this is where we've left off. The two visions, the journey back to Cornelius' home, the preaching of the gospel there, And we have to think, all right, where is this going? What's going to happen? And we see today the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles. And from this moment, things are never going to be the same. Uh, God pours his spirit on the Gentiles and grants to them repentance that leads to life. So we'll see more of this in a moment, but before we do, let's pray together. Father God, we ask that you would grant us repentance that leads to life. We ask that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear that which you would have for us, your people. Would you speak to us through your word? that we might uh, know more of who you are and what you require of us. Father, would we be encouraged um, by your word? Would we be edified by it? Father, would, uh, would every Sunday uh, we worship, every Sunday we gather, would, would each one be a uh, miniature watershed moment where we are never the same? But you are changing us more and more into the image of your Son. Be with us as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin in Acts 10.44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. 
And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice say to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing, uncommon or, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven again. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we, uh, we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen Uh, The angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord and how he said, John baptized with water, but you you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same spirit to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So the culmination of this story, remember this is the longest narrative in the book of Acts this story of Cornelius. The culmination of it ends with these Gentiles becoming Christians. It happens while Peter is still preaching. He is interrupted. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. It's a repeat of the exact same thing that happened in Jerusalem on Pentecost, happens here in Caesarea in the house of a Gentile Roman centurion. And the initial reaction from those present was amazement. You remember Peter was not alone. There were, as we read, there were six other uh, Jewish Christians who came with him from Joppa. And we're told that they couldn't believe it. That just as God had poured out his spirit on his people in his holy city, he has 
poured out his spirit on these Gentiles. And here they are speaking in tongues. They're speaking in foreign languages they did not know, just as they did on Pentecost. Now, what is happening here? I made the comment that the really the whole culmination of this narrative is that Cornelius and those in his household become Christians. And that's what has happened. They hear the word of God. Their eyes and ears are opened. They're given saving faith and they believe. And at the end of this passage, we're told that the Jews in Jerusalem acknowledge this. They say, Uh, that God has granted them repentance that leads to life. But again, we're going to talk about that next week. Cornelius and those in his house, they were born again. They were regenerated. They received forgiveness of sins. They are accepted by God. And this is a marvelous moment. Let's not forget where... The angels in heaven are rejoicing because this entire household has received everlasting life. And all of this, their conversion, their regeneration, their life everlasting is evidenced by the Spirit falling on them. We remember that to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit, and to have the Holy Spirit is to be a Christian. I know that we have Pentecostal neighbors, you have Pentecostal friends who take a different view here, who believe that it's possible to be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit. They believe it's possible uh, to have two different types of Christians, those who have the Spirit and those who have not. You have your first baptism where you become a Christian, and then you have your second baptism where you receive the Spirit. What we see in this text is that when the Holy Spirit falls, he falls on everyone present. And that to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit, and to have the Holy Spirit is to be a Christian. It is impossible to be born again apart from the Spirit of God. So I would comfort you there. There can be this nagging tendency, especially if we come from more charismatic backgrounds, to think, well, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. I, I haven't gone far enough. I, I, I haven't received the Spirit because I, I'm not feeling or expressing the same things that these other people are expressing. But I would just encourage you that if you have been born again and if, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, that is a fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit is present and working. There's also another practical aspect here. Everyone in Cornelius' household, they are, they would be those types of Christians who can tell you uh, the date and hour at which they came to faith. Okay? Now, there, there are many of those. Uh, most likely, uh, some of you uh, could tell me the date and hour you came to saving faith. There are others of us, though, who can't. Our coming to faith was a more gradual process. 
There are some raised in a Christian household and can say, I, I, I don't remember a day apart from the Lord. And I think that is the most wonderful possibility. But I, I can say for myself, I, I had... I had a, uh, I went to a youth retreat in seventh grade and it was a youth camp and I could kind of look back and point to like, all right, I think this is the moment when I came to faith. But then if you look at seasons of life through high school and college that followed, you'll see seasons in my life of disobedience. And so I, I, I'm more in the category of those who can't tell you the exact moment, but there's a gradual process. But I'm saying all this because there is a temptation for us to be suspicious of one another. Uh, the date and hour people can look at the gradual people and think, well, well you, don't, you don't have a moment that you can point to that is something to be suspicious of. And then the gradual process would be, why are you depending so much on this date and hour Uh, that you remember in your mind. It's almost like you're founding your confidence in that and not the finished work of Christ. But what I would say is that the issue here is not how someone becomes a Christian. The issue is, does someone become a Christian? Whether it's a gradual process for you or or whether uh, you can point to the date and time, does someone become a Christian? That's what we see in this text. They do. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And uh, Peter says, well, they've received the Holy Spirit, so what is keeping us from baptizing them? And the answer is nothing. There is no reason. If the Lord did not withhold His Spirit from these Gentiles, how can we withhold baptism? And we can read this text... And we can see that, and we can see tongues mentioned earlier, and we can get sidetracked and want to focus our attention on uh, tongues and the gift of tongues, or even baptism and believer's baptism. But I would just remind you the point of this entire narrative, and the reason I did that long intro is because the point is Gentiles being brought into the covenant community. Gentiles are being given the same spirit that fell on the Jews in Jerusalem. You have different people sharing in one spirit, one Savior, being a part of one body. That's the point of this text. It's not that the world is coming to Jerusalem to hear the gospel. It's that the gospel is going from Jerusalem out into the world. So that's the culmination of this narrative involving Cornelius, but then the news of this spreads like crazy. We, we now get to see the church's response uh, to this conversion of the Gentiles. We begin in chapter 11. The word spreads to the apostles and the brothers throughout Judea. They heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And, and their, their response is maybe not something that is surprising, but something that is disappointing. Because when Peter returns to Jerusalem, we're told that he is criticized. He's criticized by what Luke describes as the circumcision party. 
These, of course, are Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Pretty much all of the Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish. But I think I'm inclined to believe that this is not just your generic Jewish Christians. These are those who are hung up on the fact that these Gentiles had not been circumcised. These are probably the same folks that Paul will write about in Galatians. We'll know them as Judaizers. Those who insist that in order to be a Christian, you must be circumcised. It it is not enough to become a Christian. You must become a Jewish Christian. And so Peter returns to Jerusalem and this crew is criticizing him. And they say that they're upset because he entered a Gentile home and ate with them. You almost wish they could hear their, hear their words and remember the words of their Lord who entered the home of sinners and tax collectors and ate with them. And the scribes and Pharisees criticized him for that. You know, the whole news of Gentiles receiving the word of God isn't nearly as important as the fact that Peter has entered a Gentile home and eaten with them. And in the weeks past, we've talked about, we've talked about the discrimination uh, that came, uh, that the Gentiles experienced. But, but there's a deeper issue here as well, and it is, I believe it's this fear of the centrality of Jerusalem going away. Right? The, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are seeing the church move. They're seeing it move out, and no longer is the, the power and centrality of Jerusalem remaining. I mean, we'll see later on in chapter 11, it's going to swing to Antioch. And they probably fear Jerusalem their city no longer being the center of the church, and so they resist change. I mean, we see this today all the time, don't we? We struggle with this in the church. God is doing something new in His church. He is expanding it and growing it. He is bringing in those who who are far off. And of course there's resistance to the outside world, but there can be significant resistance from within the church. We can resist the change that he's bringing about. You know, there's this joke about Presbyterians. Um, The joke is how many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, they would respond by saying, change? Why would we change? They'd never even get to the actual light bulb. They'd get hung up over the word change. Well, that's so easy for us to fall into. And then there's this deep suspiciousness of what's going on. Not only is the power seemingly moving away from Jerusalem, but Peter, what are you doing? Uh, why aren't these folks up there in Caesarea adopting our practices and traditions? They haven't gone through our new members class and you've baptized them. Peter, why were you even there? You're acting a bit unorthodox. 
maybe you're either, even going liberal, Peter. How is Peter to respond to this? There's a, cu- a couple possibilities here. We don't want to be those who abandoned the faith. Peter did not abandon the faith. We don't want to be those who do that. We don't want to chip away at the faith. We don't want to degrade the faith. Uh, there's a, an illustration I've heard of a skyscraper. And the skyscraper, uh, a guy had an office on the 44th floor. And he's in his office and he begins to notice cracks in the wall. And so uh, he calls the building supervisor, shows him the cracks. The building supervisor, the building supervisor calls as an engineer. Calls an engineer. The engineer meets him down front. And they walk towards the elevator. The building supervisor and the engineer get in the elevator together. And uh, the engineer hits the basement button. And the supervisor says, no, no, no. The problem is on the 44th floor. And he said, no, the problem is in the basement. That's what, call, that's what is causing those cracks. Now we... In the same way, we don't want to chip away at our foundation. We want to remain firm. We are Presbyterian after all. We love our confession of faith and our catechisms. We love those, but we want to hold on to those and also not get in the way of God's work. As Peter says here in chapter 11, verse 17, Who was I to stand in God's way? We want to hold on to our faith. We want to hold on to our traditions and not change the important things, but we don't want to get in God's way. At the same time, there's there's another option. The other option uh, would be that taken by liberal Christianity, especially around the turn of the 20th century. There's a lot of concern for the next generation. Uh, everyone was, it, it started off with positive intentions and motivations. We don't want the church to wind up in the dustbin of history. We want our children uh, to remain in the church. And so we need to remove any hindrances to belief. We need to ask the world what is unpalatable, what is unbelievable, and we will remove those things. They were a little too far the other way. And it hollowed out those churches. So there is a middle road in between theological liberalism and the Judaizers. And it's what Peter does here. We can be faithful to our traditions and not hinder the movement of God. And we also don't have to throw orthodoxy overboard. And Peter shows us there are five principles here in this text, and this is what we'll end with. If we are wondering the will of God, if we're wondering if we're... uh, Pursuing faithfulness, these are the five principles we need to ask. Number one, look at God's word. What has God's word said? Then look at God's 
providence? Where has he placed you? What is he doing? What events have happened? What doors has the Lord opened? What doors has he closed? And third is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're to be sensitive to the Spirit. How, how is he leading us? And, and we're always we're told to test the spirits. And the Spirit will always be in line with the Word of God and always remind us of Christ's words. And then number four, we're to be obedient to the commands of God. And then five, to look for the confirmation he gives. So I'll, I'll repeat those very quickly. If we're wondering about God's will, am I in line with God's will? We look to his word. We look at his providence. We are convicted by the Holy Spirit. We're obedient to his commands, and we look for confirmation that he gives. Now, that might be hard to kind of grasp, but Peter illustrates it for us. First, uh, when he's being questioned by these Jewish Christians, he begins by saying, listen, I, I looked at God's word. I was in Joppa praying, and he came to me in a trance, and he showed me a vision, and he spoke to me and said, rise, kill, and eat. And then he says, Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. God spoke to me. And who am I to go against his word? Then not only did God speak, but God's providence lined up as well. At the very moment, God is speaking to him. These three men arrive. God didn't give Peter a week to cool off. In that moment, these men arrived from Caesarea. And they helped Peter to clearly see what God was doing, what he was talking about. When you read over this story, you see that God has orchestrated all of the people and the events and the circumstances to accomplish his purposes. So Peter looked at God's word and he looked at God's providence. And then he felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're told uh, the Spirit tells Peter to go with them. Never mind the fact that they're Gentiles, go with them. And then fourth is obedience. Peter is obedient to the commands of God. He goes and he takes six brothers with him. And what confirmation does he receive? The Lord pours out his blessing on that household. The Holy Spirit falls and the entire household comes to saving faith in Christ. So Peter is in a position where he's being questioned. And he says, listen, God spoke God orchestrated all of this. I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I had no choice but to be obedient to his commands. And the confirmation I received was a house full of people coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Who am I to stand in the way of his plans? So I would encourage you, as you make decisions, as you ponder the will of God, To look to those five things, the word of God, the providence of God, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, obedience to his commands, and then the confirmation he gives, the incredible ways in which he works. That we might not be those who attempt to get in the way of where our God is taking his church and those he is bringing into it. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we want to be faithful in all of life. We want to be faithful to you, and we ask for your assistance in teaching us and correcting us and training us. Father, would we be those as Christians who look first and foremost at your word and what you have spoken, and would that guide not only what we believe but how we live? Father, would we also remember that you orchestrate all events just as you orchestrated uh, this meeting between Cornelius and Peter and brought them together. Uh, Father, you orchestrate our days as well. And so would we trust in your perfect providential plan? Father, would we have hearts sensitive to the Holy Spirit? Uh, Peter could have quenched the Spirit here. He, he could have denied it and said, there's no way I'm, I'm going into a Gentile home. But Father, would we, would we be quick to listen and quick to heed the promptings of your Holy Spirit? And Father, would we be obedient? And in our obedience, would we look for uh, the wonderful ways in which you work? Father, it's our hope that many, many more uh, people uh, close to us in our community would come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, just as Cornelius and his household did. So, Father, we ask that you would continue to work. And would you use us, just as you used Peter, would you use us to bring in those that are far off? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.